This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our own Alex Cortez now brings us this latest edition from our Rule of Law series. The federal government fought to take Howard Root's medical device company away from him. But first, he had to have a company. Go to law school to be a litigator, and then I go out to do my summer associate job, and I realize that litigation is mainly research writing. There was a partner there who hadn't seen a courtroom as a senior lawyer on a trial for his first 10 years. So I thought, that's not what I want to do. I want to do something that's a little more active, a little bit more getting things done. And so that's when I decided I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. And I wanted to live in Minnesota, so I come to Minnesota. But then I show up at Dorsey and Whitney thinking that this is a career, a profession, and people are gonna be happy and pulling together. But it was more bill by the hour, get your hours in. The biggest frustration is if you do more work, the client pays more money. <laughs> and so, so you're trying to get the most done for the least, and the client is always upset that you're charging them too much money. So I thought the way to solve that is to go to work for a corporation where I'm not paid by the hour, and lo and behold, the first client that offered me that job was in medical devices. That is, until he lost that job. And so what did Howard do? He decided to start his own medical device company. And medical companies, given all the safety risks and regulations, aren't exactly the easiest companies to start. Plus, he wasn't a doctor, scientist, or engineer. You'd think this 36-year-old didn't really have much going for him at all. And I had absolutely everything I needed to be a successful CEO and a successful company, except two little details. I had no money and I had no medical device. But everything else I was ready to go for. But it's more important to have the skill set and the drive and the desire to get something done than it is to have the money or the specific idea. You can find money, you can find ideas. You can't find that ability or the judgment or the drive to get it done. And supposedly, he didn't have that either. When the business that I was working at wasn't growing and they let me go, my boss you know, paid to have a personality assessment done for me, which would tell me what I should do with my career. So I said, it's free, I'll sit down, I'll go through this. I go through it and the guy comes back and says, you should be a number two or you should be a lawyer. You definitely should not be an entrepreneur. You don't have any of the marks of entrepreneur. It's like, well, I'm gonna do an entrepreneur then. Howard found some money. He found a doctor who had an idea for a sealant after a cardiologist implants a stent. He licensed it from the doctor and he had himself a great little company until a competitor came in. And they took 85% share of the market that I was going after. So we were locked at about $12 million in sales, and we were losing $15 million a year while doing that. And I didn't see a way out. So I went back to the board and said, you know, I think our first product, clinically, it works. But commercially, we can't beat the competition. So we're going to lose all our money if we keep down this path. A company that, after several years, has only one product, and it's losing a lot of money. At this point, the board of this public company might want to shut it down, let the investors take the money that's left, and run. But that's not how Howard saw things. Instead, what I think we should do is de-emphasize the only product we had at the time and emphasize new products that we can develop and get those on the market before our money runs out. And I think then we can have a standalone medical device company. But that's easier 
for Howard to say. He's trying to save face. Everyone else isn't in this same boat and didn't have the same enthusiasm for his plan. I announced it to Wall Street and our stock went from, I think $26 was the high price and it went down to 70 cents when we announced uh, what we were gonna do with this refocus because we, we really didn't know what other products we were gonna launch. But the board of directors who actually controlled the company did have that other option. The board gets together and says, you know, if we shut down right now, we'll, we can give the shareholders $2 for each share they own. So why shouldn't we shut down now and give this, the money back and d- more than double their money? Well, you know, that is a legitimate question to ask. And uh, I had to go in there and say, because I think we've got a good chance of making it into $5 or $10 a share if we continue to do what we've done. And at that point, you know, they, they really have the choice of either pulling the plug or going forward. It was a six to one vote. The one guy who didn't vote for going down this path was the doctor who I had licensed the idea from. He thought this was a crazy plan, so he left the company. So my only clinical expertise in the company left at the same time um, that the board voted to go down a path with no products in the bag. A huge sigh of relief for Howard for a few minutes because yet again, he had to go out there and find a product. I was worried. I was worried that we wouldn't come up with something. And, you know, fear for me is something, if you don't have anything to do, fear can overcome you. And, and in my case, if, if I just sit around and think about something and I don't have anything to keep myself occupied, that would be intolerable. But if you've got something to do, that's, then your mind is occupied. And then you can kind of tolerate it and continue to go forward. We launched three new products. And that really rebounded the company. And we almost doubled sales in 2004 from 2003. So that was our first near-death experience. The second one came out of nowhere seven years later on June 28th, 2011. I get a call from someone at the office that tells me that we've got a subpoena. And, well, that's not unusual for a company to get a subpoena. There's a collection matter in it. I asked them, where is the subpoena from? And they said, it's from the government. And that's, that is a little unusual. Then I asked where in the government, it's from San Antonio. That's strange, because I've never been in San Antonio. And then I asked, what's it about? And they're investigating a federal criminal violation by my company. And it hits you from out of the blue, and you think, what the heck could be going on? I mean, we're not a criminal operation. But for the next five years, he'd have to fight to prove that every single day and when we come back more of this compelling story howard root's story the founder of the medical device company vascular solutions here on our american stories
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex's story of Howard Root, the unlikely founder of a medical device company, and who one day, out of the blue, received a subpoena from the federal government. This saga all started because one of Howard's employees, a former one, filed a lawsuit in the Western District of Texas, and it wasn't just any old lawsuit. He filed it with the U.S. Attorney's Office as a whistleblower, leaving the government to decide whether they wanted to take on the case, and if they do, they're the ones to do it, not the whistleblower and their lawyer, which means that all of the expenses are on the federal government's dime, a virtually unlimited one, whereas companies, especially small ones, do not. And if the government wins the case, the whistleblower gets 25% of the winnings, a big percentage. And so the whistleblower has a big incentive to drum up a big case for the biggest payday possible. And this whistleblower's story was that Vascular Solutions was marketing one of their products off-label. So you start off with something that's fairly confusing. When you say you have a, an approved medical device, the device isn't approved. The device is approved for a specific use or for an indication for use. And so you get approval to use, say, a scalpel for cutting this part of the body but it's not approved for using it in a different part of the body. That would be an off-label use. Confused yet? Well, there's more. Now, you add to that that doctors can use any medical device for any use, and it's not illegal. It's actually necessary, because you cannot possibly get approval for a device for everything a doctor can use it for. They'll just grab it and go. So the law is that doctors can use a device for anything they want, and then companies are only supposed to talk about it for use in the indications that it's approved for. That's what the FDA wants to have happen. But the courts have said, this is a free speech thing. If the doctors are legally able to use it, sales reps can talk about that use all they want. That's free speech, it's not false, it's not misleading. It's actually in the best interest of the patient because the device sales rep has the most information about it. But the FDA and DOJ want to make it a crime. And there, carelessly ignoring the courts, whereas Vascular Solutions is overly careful. And that included doing things that the FDA didn't even ask them to do, but they could. Vascular Solutions had a product line called Verilase, which treats varicose veins, the pooling of blood in a leg's vein that can cause skin ulcers and even amputation. And Vascular Solutions' approved FDA use for it generally covered all varicose veins. But in an abundance of caution, 12 different times they went back to the FDA to ask them to approve one of the products' treatment of a specific use. And they were granted it each time. Yet, strangely, on the 13th time, the FDA didn't approve it. But no matter, Howard would act out of an abundance of caution again. He told his sales reps not to promote this specific product, the short kit, for this specific vein, the perforator. And then, unexpectedly, he was punished for this caution. 
Now, Vascular Solutions, my company, when we were dealing with the FDA, we did everything the FDA ever wanted us to do, even if it was not legally necessary. Because if they don't like you, they can come and inspect you every single day, they can shut you down. So we said yes, sir, to everything they wanted. That actually creates more liability. We tell our sales reps, do not talk about an off-label use, period. Even though legally they can, if we tell them that, and then someone does it, something I told them not to, they think it's illegal, I'm giving them the fear of God, don't do this, but I want them so far away from that line, and I want them so far on the good side of the FDA, that I'm not giving them a legal lesson, I'm giving them just an instruction. And here's where the problem came in is, the sales rep who became a disgruntled employee thought that we were doing something illegal because someone was doing something that I told them not to do. And he just assumed that must be because it's illegal. One rogue sales rep put together a presentation for how the short kit can help perforator veins, which was exactly what Howard instructed them not to do. A clear instruction that all of the other 69 sales reps followed. And all of the sudden, an entire company is at risk. And all over a product that they only sold $500,000 of ever, making up 0.5%, 0.5% of their sales, and never even harmed a patient. But the Department of Justice's Tim Finley told them that it was going to get them indicted with a $20 million bounty on their heads. And he then proceeded to make Howard this quote-unquote offer. I'd had to plead guilty to a misdemeanor. It had to be accepting responsibility that I actually, not only was I the responsible corporate officer, but I needed to sign a statement saying that I directed this conduct, which is absolutely positively not true. It's, it's false. But I had to make that statement. With that, I would be excluded from working anywhere in healthcare for a minimum of five years. I'd pay a fine back to the government. Of 2.3 million dollars. The one thing they gave me with that was they said, if you plead guilty, we can recommend that you don't do any prison time. It'll be like six months of home confinement. But the prosecutors don't make that decision. The judge does. The settlement would have required Howard to lie and would have destroyed his career. It wasn't much of an option at all. But to many, it would still be the better option. A $2.3 million fine versus a $20 million one. The likelihood of not going to jail versus a higher chance of landing in jail. And yet to Howard, it wasn't the better option. He saw it as a shakedown proposal from his own government, and he rejected it. I don't know, maybe I was naive. I didn't think that was that much different. If I plead guilty to something and say I did something wrong, I'm just not gonna be happy the rest of my life. And if I'm in prison for a year of that or two years of that, well, so be it. They would have had to get to the point where if I had pled guilty to something that I said I did not do, but I'm the responsible officer, the buck stops with me and therefore I take responsibility for this, that would have allowed me to continue on with my life and that might have been something I would have considered just to get out of the indictment. But that's the sick feeling is that even if you're innocent, the government can make an offer where you will plead guilty to get out of an indictment in virtually any case. It's just there's very few people who would be willing to go all the way to the mat to a jury verdict 
if they've got any kind of an out that saves their life. But that's the path that Howard chose, a path where the government lands a conviction against you 91% of the time. Howard chose to toss the dice to be one of the lucky few to land in the 9%. But Howard wasn't the only one with a choice. His board, yet again, had the ultimate choice. And again, they backed him. It's a danger, because as far as I know, I'm the first indicted CEO to stay running an indicted public company all the way through trial. Their federal indictment came down through the secretive grand jury process. I was a lawyer and I had no clue. I mean, I never paid attention to what grand juries are and, and how unfair they are to the witness. A grand jury is, you know, one of these supposedly, you know, stalwarts of justice in America is a grand jury. That no one gets indicted for a major crime without 12 independent common people of the community saying that there's probable cause that a crime occurred. And the idea is great because we should not be falsely accusing people of crimes. Just the accusation alone is enough to destroy a lot of people. So you wanna make sure there's a check on prosecutors. Well, great, but the problem is it's not a check on prosecutors. It can't possibly be when the result is a foregone conclusion. The number of grand juries that do not indict and we're talking, you know, 0.0001%. I think the statistic is like 17 in the last 10 years. I mean, it's so unusual. But if you want to indict anyone, you could indict anyone in America. And when we come back, more of this terrific story. And my goodness, the numbers on grand jury indictments is pretty staggering. Almost 99.93% of all grand juries lead to indictment. And Howard Root, the founder of the medical device company Vascular Solutions, is at the bad end of a bad prosecutor and an overreaching government. And when we come back, Howard's story, the rest of his story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue with Howard Root's story of his medical device company, Vascular Solutions, being targeted by their own federal government. I did not know that there is no judge in a grand jury proceeding. There is no opposing counsel in the grand jury proceeding. The grand jury room isn't even a courtroom. It's just a little conference room where they have 12 grand jurors who are not paying attention, a court reporter, the prosecutor, and the witness. And the prosecutor asks the question of the witness. There is no one there to object on your behalf as, as the witness. There's no judge to rule on it, if you, even if you did object. Your only choice is to say, I want to talk to my lawyer, and you have to leave the room, talk to your lawyer, and then come back in, and then the prosecutor continues to ask the question. So it's an unfair uh, position for the employee to be in. 
and the six of Howard's employees who were called to testify of the grand jury were asked questions in ways that weren't really questions. These employees go in and they believe, like I did at the start, if you're innocent in America, what you should do is cooperate and tell the truth to the prosecutors. I told each employee when they went down to the grand jury, I have only one instruction for you, tell the truth. But the, the prosecutors are asking questions from seven or eight years ago, and they don't do it in a sense of asking the sales rep's opinion. If they did, the sales rep would say, I don't know the law. But the prosecutors would go in front of the grand jury and say, you know that off-label promotion is illegal, don't you? And when an assistant U.S. attorney says what the law is, most salespeople will agree. One of the reasons they're salespeople is they like to agree. They never say no to the customer. And the customer in this case, they think, is that prosecutor. So they're giving testimony to the prosecutors, which is exactly the words the prosecutor said to them. And then the prosecutor says, see, the corporation knew this was illegal. Now you, the CEO, are responsible. You're going to prison. And this would be the so-called evidence that the government prosecutors would use in the courtroom. And when the employees were wise enough to push back against the prosecutors, there were consequences. If someone says, no, that did not happen, we were not instructed to go out and promote products off-label. We were a by-the-book company. Then the prosecutor wants to amp it up. And he'll start with saying, other people disagree with you. Are you calling them a liar? Which is against the law for a prosecutor to bring up another witness's testimony. <laughs> or he will say, if you want to take that position, it should be made known that I have the power to destroy your career because I think you're lying. And if you're lying, that's fraud. And if I say to Department of Health and Human Services that this healthcare employee is engaged in fraud, they will exclude you from working with any institution that takes a Medicare patient, which is every hospital in America. So you'll never sell another medical device if you get excluded. Well, then people think, well, boy, I, I better agree with this guy. I don't want to get destroyed. And then he says, and if you say this over here, we'll give you immunity. And worse than just say this, the government prosecutors went as far as coercing the employees into signing incriminating statements that they had written. Now, this statement was written by the prosecutors. It's written in legalese. I know my sales reps could never even understand what they were saying, much less come up with it on their own. And the, the prosecutors would not allow the witness to change the statement. Now, if this is a statement of the employee of what happened, the employee should be allowed to change whatever they want. And they shouldn't be threatened that if you say the wrong thing according to the prosecutors, you get destroyed. And if you say the right thing, you get immunity. I mean, that's a way of getting not truth, but actually the opposite of truth. And if the employee did not do that in the case of Glenn Holden, the prosecutors said he was in obstruction of justice and lying and indicted him on perjury. But it didn't stop there. Howard later learned that it was one of his employees, not him, who was subjected to the prosecutor's most reprehensible tactic. Beth Matthews was our regional manager in Great Lakes, and they actually told her. It was just so bizarre, because she said he's, she's getting abused by these prosecutors who want her to testify a way that she knows is not true. And then they say, you should rethink your answer because, quote, we have the power to withhold rights and privileges provided to your natural-born son. Now, you know, it's weird on a couple fronts. First, why are you threatening my children? But second, how specific do you have to be to know that she's got a natural-born son and an adopted son? 
I mean, to her, the weird thing was they were telling her that we know all about you. So you better do what we tell you because we've got power over your entire life. And to top it off, here's how the grand jury process addressed the person who supposedly committed the injustice. The prosecutors decide who to call in. They didn't call me in. They would not bring me into the grand jury in order to give testimony to the grand jury because that was not going to be helpful to them. So the grand jurors only heard one side of the story, one corrupted by illegal and questionable practices and never heard the other side. What do you think they were going to do? The indictment came down on November 13th, 2014 with six criminal charges against Glenn Holden, nine criminal charges against Vascular Solutions, and nine against Howard Root. They tried to appeal it to the higher-ups at the Department of Justice, and they weren't interested. Potentially worse is how Howard's senator, Amy Klobuchar, reacted. I've known Amy since 1985. She was a politician back then, even when she was a lawyer at the law firm working with me. She will give you a hot dish recipe if you need one any time of day, that's fine. She'll let you tour the Capitol and give you a preferred pass. But if you actually want her to look into something that's substantive, we call her Small Stuff Amy for a reason. I sent her staff the background on this case. So she said to me, or her chief of staff said to me, that there is a rule that senators cannot get involved in ongoing DOJ investigations, which is 100% false. Because my lawyers used to work in the Department of Justice and they got called all the time by senators asking for an accounting of what was going on. But that was Amy's way of saying I can't do something because of a rule, rather than saying I won't do something to help you. His senator didn't tell him the truth. They're now preparing for the trial, and Howard's team searched for their own evidence that would exonerate him. And one of the places that they looked was that FDA reviewer who strangely denied their 13th application. We found the reviewer, and we asked him some questions, like, what happened and what was your experience? We found out that he had been at the FDA for only a month. He had no medical device experience at all. And oh, the other thing about him was his prior job, prior to getting hired at the FDA, was he was working at a McDonald's as the shift manager at night. So you go from managing a local McDonald's to being the FDA reviewer on varicose vein treatments in one month. Now this guy actually understood his limitations. And so when he got our application, he asked someone who had been there a long time, what do you think? And that guy said, yeah, you should approve it. And so he went, started doing that. And then someone else got their hands on it. And the guy said, no, 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 we need a clinical study. That other person had never worked in this area and wanted a clinical study in every application. So now this is damning evidence because most of the people in the FDA are saying, you don't need to get out approval. This is exonerating evidence. This is stuff the jury would love to hear. The investigator, George Scavdis, interviewed, I would say interviewed, he claims it was an interview. He talked with the examiner the, and, and the examiner gave him that information. He never, George Gavnis never wrote it down and never gave it over to us. We had to find this examiner independent of the government. And so when we found the examiner and got that information, we asked the prosecutors, well, where's the memos? And every investigation needs to be documented. The response back was, we did not conduct an investigation of the examiner. 
Well, and they used the quote marks around investigation, which means that they're drawing a distinction between what they did. Said the prosecutor did ask some questions of him, but based on that, there was no evidence that was relevant, so we did not conduct an investigation. And when we come back, the final segment of this remarkable story, Howard Root's story, the founder of the medical device company Vascular Solutions, and my goodness, what a story about, well, so much, but the rule of law is just one. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and now the final portion of Howard Root's epic battle against his own government. They get to the trial, and the government prosecutor's case is so weak that almost all of their witnesses were hostile ones. They didn't want to be there. And their testimony would actually make the case of the defense. And the most explosive example of this was the government's last witness, Shane Carlson. So Shane probably hasn't slept the three nights before then. Going into a courtroom where he's going to get pounded by prosecutors and he's going to sit there with his boss in the courtroom, and if Shane says the wrong word, his boss is going to go to prison. I mean, he's feeling it. He's on the stand and the prosecutors are using his grand jury transcripts, which he doesn't even remember, and at the time didn't know what he was saying to impeach him and by changing him and beating him up on everything. And he doesn't know what to say, so he's, he's got the deer in the headlights look to him. And this goes on for like two to three hours. And then it switches over to the cross-examination. And our lawyers are getting up there asking him more softball questions to get him to come out with what he's feeling. And we're going over, now you didn't want to be convicted of a crime, did you, Mr. Carlson? No. And when you were thinking about what these prosecutors were doing to you, you weren't thinking of yourself, were you? He said, no. In fact, you were thinking of your little daughters, weren't you? And that's when he broke down. That's what he was thinking. What will his daughters think of him if he's indicted of a felony for lying to the government? And that just came out at him and he just started sobbing. I mean, my wife was watching on the transcripts this testimony going on. And there was just a silence there. The transcript stopped. It's an online transcript. It stops. You go, what's going on here? And it's because everyone is silent in the courtroom while he's trying to compose himself. And the jury's looking at him thinking, what the hell is going on here when prosecutors are beating up this guy to the point that he's worried about his children over something that's so insignificant? And that's one of the biggest disconnects in our case was that the prosecutors thought this was a horrible act and yet they couldn't point to anyone who had been hurt. You just can't make it out to be a bad case if no patient was hurt, if no investor lost money, if no one did anything that was even material in any way. And the jury got that. I was worried about what would happen if the lawyers were just left to themselves. Because they come up with ideas and they're risk averse, but they want to figure out a way to avoid making a mistake. So I was down there from the very beginning, before the trial started, all the way to the end in San Antonio at the hotel room, living with my lawyers, being in the war room. So if I saw anything that was starting to go a little bit 
weird between my lawyer, between the company's lawyers, between the employee's lawyers, between the former employee's lawyers. I would be there and part of it. So if I needed to direct something, I could direct it before it got to a decision. The only exception to that was I came back to Minnesota for the President's Day weekend in February of 2016. And then I fly back down on Monday night thinking everything's good. We got it down. We're going well. Our case is coming up. We're three weeks in. And I get there and my lawyer texts me, hey, Howard, can you stop by the war room? We got something we want to discuss with you. And just when I got that, I knew, oh my God, they came up with something. I'm not going to like it. They got lawyer upon lawyer upon lawyer pounding on me. What is this going to be? And I get there and they say, we do not want to call a single witness to testify in our defense. And I thought, oh my Lord, you don't want to call a witness. Putting the defendant himself on the stand is risky. And I had arguments with my lawyer from day one. Is, I will testify. I will testify. No matter what you say, I will testify. That is my constitutional right. I'm going to do it. You cannot change my mind. But when they said they're not going to call any witness, that meant they're not going to call me to testify, which means I don't get to testify. It wasn't because they wanted to keep me off the stand, although they were worried about that. It was because they were worried that if we called a case, the government would get a chance to put on a rebuttal case. And there were a couple of witnesses waiting in the wings that my lawyers thought were going to be big time government witnesses that they were waiting to sandbag us with on rebuttal. And then we can't do a rebuttal after the rebuttal. So that would be the last word. My reasoning though was we had all this very emotional testimony that had just come in. Jurors actually were visibly upset, angry at the prosecutors. And I could count at least five of them and the alternate juror number one, so six total, that were on our side. Making it difficult for the government to get the unanimous jury verdict against Howard that federal criminal prosecutions require. I didn't think there was anything that was going to happen from there on that would change them for saying the government is guilty and Howard Root and Vascular Solutions are not guilty. Having said that, if I had been convicted, that decision not to call witnesses, I would have regretted for the rest of my life. Because my wife said, if the jury sees you talk about what you do and why you do it, they're going to connect with you. It would turn out not to have been necessary. The jury acquitted Howard and Vascular Solutions of every single charge, landing them in the 0.5%, the one defendant out of every 200, to be acquitted by a jury in a federal criminal trial. And yet, you could also say that Howard really should be in jail, given that the government charged him with a strict liability crime. Strict liability crime means that if a salesperson says the wrong word and I have the power and authority to prevent or correct that word, then I am responsible for the crime as much as he is. So if someone says the wrong word, I have the power to prevent it because that's my job. I have the power to correct it. I have the authority as CEO to prevent it and correct it. So I would swear under oath, I have the power and authority to prevent and correct every violation in the company when I'm the CEO. So the only question then becomes, did the salesperson say the wrong word? And if they did, the CEO goes to prison. So I don't know of anything else in America that's so disjointed from, from justice than the concept of a strict liability crime, because you cannot change something you don't know anything about. And if I didn't intend to do something, if I didn't know they did it, I could even have told them not to do something. They did that, and then I'm responsible for it. And if you've never managed 100 salespeople, think 100 teenagers and realize that you can't live in that standard.
you know, the, the evidence they presented was enough for the jury to believe that I was guilty of a crime because that was the jury instruction. All I needed to be was a responsible corporate officer and someone had to do something wrong. Danny McGiff, who the government pressured and threatened and incentivized and you know, bribed, signed a statement that he had engaged in criminal activity. You take his admission with that statute, I'm guilty of a misdemeanor. And I think the jury just didn't believe that that's a crime. But technically they could. They could have come to that decision. I went into this thinking I feared the jury because we're all, you know, you're fearful of 12 angry men, right? And you've seen the movie, you've, you've heard about these things where jurors are just want to string you up. And then you think on the other side, you think there's got to be good people in government. And sure, there are bad people in everything. There's bad people in medical devices and banks and the government, police officers everywhere. But there's enough good people that if you appeal it, that the good people will see it and they will not allow this to continue. And my whole case destroyed my thinking on that. Because every time we appealed it up, we got less attention and less judgment. I mean, the senior guy at Department of Justice that we appealed to, he had never tried a case before. And yet he's the last person deciding whether indictments get issued. And what I saw was what they wanted to do was get a CEO convicted of this kind of crime because they wanted to put a mark down. And they were looking for that around the country. And they wanted to find a public company so it would be more visible. They wanted to find a small public company so they could actually punish them harder. If they went after Medtronic, there'd be a lot more uproar about it because that's tens of thousands of employees and more publicity and more connections. So they intentionally pick smaller people to go after because those are the ones they can beat. And that's what they want is a sign to everyone else to stand in line. The government failed to send out this sign and there's not been a single consequence for their failure. All of the government actors in this story are still employed by us. We taxpayers are still paying for the salaries of the prosecutors, Bud Paulson Jr., Tim Finley, Christina Playton, and also for FDA special agent, George Skabdis. In terms of going after prosecutors, they have immunity for their job, so you cannot sue them for that. And then you have to bring a disciplinary investigation against them, which goes into the Department of Justice. And that organization, the Office of Professional Responsibility, reports to the Attorney General. And so it's an inside organization investigation of inside organization activity. So if you try to bring that up to someone, they're going to just ignore you. Um, and we did that. They're still employed, but Howard is not. There are three to five percent of the people in America who are entrepreneurs, people who create jobs, people who create businesses. And if those three or five become two to four, our growth goes way down. If those three to five become four to six, our growth goes up. We're playing at such small margins of people who actually go out there and create things. It's not that they're the most important people in the world, it's just that in the economy, there are a few number of people who are creating a lot of the growth in companies. And if you drive those people out, bad things happen. So. When I was being attacked, the first reaction is, I'm going to defend myself. Then after you realize that you are likely going to win, then you think, you know, they're going to want to try this again, or I'm subject to this risk again. Do I want to do this again? And the answer then is no. You know, sure, I loved medical devices. It was my life's ambition that I found when I was 35. But at 55, 56, I decided that staying out of jail, staying out of the courtroom was more important than doing this for another 10 to 20 years. And when I realized that, you know, you mentally you just switch off. 
And what a story. Great job on that, Alex, as always. And that's why we bring you our American Dreamer series. Entrepreneurs are up against enough. But to face an unscrupulous prosecutor, our own federal government trying to extract fines in the end money using criminal proceedings as a threat. So few people can buck that. They'll just pay the fine. It's like getting that letter from the IRS. Your accountant says, hey, you didn't do anything wrong, but just pay them. And we love to bring you those stories of the overreaching federal government when it does. And Howard Root's story here on Our American Stories. American stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by the people at Hillsdale College. And on this day in history in 1706, Benjamin Franklin was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Many of us know Franklin as one of our nation's founding fathers. But as we'll see next in this hour coming up, he shaped our culture even more than our government. He was an American writer, inventor, media executive, scientist, and diplomat, all of these things and more. And we turn to Walter Isaacson, himself quite a man. Let's see, Walter is the president of the Aspen Institute right now, but he'd been the head at CNN, was the managing editor at Time, and he's written some biographies on some pretty important people, like the one almost all Americans read or at least came across, Steve Jobs, and also his remarkable, remarkable bio on Albert Einstein. And we went to a talk of his, Isaacson gave, off his book and based on his book, Benjamin Franklin and American Life. And he gave a talk at the Free Library of Philadelphia. And we're sharing some of the highlights of that talk right now. So let's start at the beginning. Why did Walter choose to write about Benjamin Franklin and what shaped this man? The other founding fathers, you know, they're all up there in marble, carved in marble on a pedestal. This guy is flesh and blood, and uh, people say, gee, you know, he had a problem with his son, and his marriage was sort of, you know, not always perfect, and so don't, don't you have problems with that? And you say, wait a minute, you know people like that? You know, we're all uh, flesh and blood humans, and at least this is the founder that you can relate to, and uh, especially when you're breathing the air of Philadelphia. Of course, he doesn't really start here. Uh, he starts in Boston, and um, as a wonderful self-taught kid, he was a tenth son of uh, somebody, a candle maker from Boston, and his father was uh, thus going to make him the tithe to the Lord, send him to study for the ministry at Harvard. Uh, fortunately, perhaps, Benjamin Franklin was not exactly cut for the cloth. One day they were uh, salting away all the provisions uh, for the winter and putting them away, and young Benjamin Franklin said, why don't I say grace over them right now? We get it done with once and for all for the year. So his father realized it would be a darn waste of money to send him to Harvard. It's probably the best thing ever to happen to him. Uh, instead, he has to become self-taught. This is why he loves libraries, of course. His older brother was a printer. He gets apprenticed to his older brother. And so he gets to borrow overnight some of the books from the booksellers that they uh, print the books for. And there he is at age 12 and 13, 
you know, taking these books and trying to teach himself and remembering each one of them, you know, Plutarch's Lives, he reads, and Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and all those books that all of us were reading when we were 12 and 13 <laughs> years old. And he decides he's got to make himself a great writer, too, because he wants to be a writer. And what he does is he takes old copies of The Spectator, that great British magazine, and he reads the essays by Addison and Steele and takes notes on them and puts the notes aside and occasionally recreates the essay in poetry so he can increase his vocabulary and then finally tries to replicate the original essay from his notes or from the poetry and compare it with the original to see how well he did and to correct himself when he felt he hadn't been able to replicate the argument quite as well. And then he said, every now and then, though, I did feel that just in one or two particulars I was able not only to recreate the argument, for her, but perhaps even improve it, which made me think I would be a tolerable writer. And again, the theme we hear over and over again here on Our American Stories, self-taught, just like the Wright brothers we learned from David McCullough. And Franklin, what a life. Walter Isaacson continues. Well, uh, he not only became a tolerable writer, but the best writer in America of his time, and the first writer in America really to have that wonderful, folksy, straightforward, pragmatic, practical, conversational style. Uh, be that as it may, his brother, being an older brother, and this is the way older brothers are, uh, was jealous of him, did not want him to write for the newspaper. So young Ben Franklin, now about 15 or 16 years old, decides to create a pseudonym and secretly uh, submit essays for the paper. Very famously, of course, uh, disguising his handwriting, writing under the name of Silence Do Good. Now, this is a very, say, cheeky, uh, perhaps even, um, uh, let's say, Randy or something, 15, 16 year old kid who's never spent the night outside of Boston writing as if he's a widowed woman living in the countryside of Massachusetts. A great triumph of the imagination. A, a widow who's being courted by a minister in the most ridiculous fashion. So you think, wow, this guy has a great imagination. But not only does he have a great imagination and a wonderful, spunky sense of humor, but each one of these Silence Do Get essays of this young kid has a real point to it. A point that helps create what America's all about. First essay, he talks about, or Silence Lugood talks about, how she has an aversion to tyranny, and any trampling of her rights makes her blood boil exceedingly. And it's that notion of liberty and freedom that's going to become part of the American character. And then, of course, since Boston's a theocracy at that point, you know, a Puritan-run uh, commonwealth, the first great crusading against the notion of church and state being together instead of having a separation. And there's Silas Duguid poking fun at Governor Dudley for being a clergyman who goes into government and saying anybody who uh, uh, is first a clergyman can rob all your money that way and then take all your money in government. It's a worse form of hypocrisy and that's why we have to end it. But you, you know, and it's so delightful, but you have to read it carefully to see, oh yes, we're creating a new nation here, even in this mind of this young 16 year old a nation built on religious tolerance, on a separation of church and state, an aversion to tyranny, all of these things, which you'll be happy, those of you here in Philadelphia, to know was not exactly the way everybody in Boston felt. 
whether it be his brother or the ruling authorities in Boston who a couple times tried to shut down the newspaper. So finally, of course, Benjamin Franklin runs away to come down here to Market Street uh, eventually and uh, be a runaway apprentice trying to make his name as a leather apron shopkeeper here in Philadelphia. And you're listening to Walter Isaacson talking about his book, Benjamin Franklin and American Life. For the hour, the story of Benjamin Franklin, born on this day in history in 1706. More after these messages. our American stories and we continue with Walter Isaacson and his book Benjamin Franklin and American Life and we're celebrating ben- Benjamin Franklin's life because he was born on this day in history in 1706 we left off with Franklin leaving Boston and heading to Philadelphia let's pick up from there it's great that he comes here because it helps reinforce this core notion that I feel is at the heart of what Benjamin Franklin is about and why he's so relevant in a century, this century, in which the fight against religious intolerance and the fight for pluralism and uh, against fanaticism is the core fight of our century around the world and in all places where it's challenged. He comes to Philadelphia and it gets reinforced because here you have a city, a city of brotherly love, as the name implies, in which it's not just a Puritan theocracy, but they're Congregationalists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and also Moravians and Jews and people of all faiths all working together. And he just thrives in that element because he becomes a little shopkeeper. He understands how to serve customers. He understands the tolerance, the notion of pragmatism, the notion of compromise, of even making a deal that comes from being a shopkeeper serving a diverse clientele. And that's what instills in him some of these great notions that he gives to us as a nation. And you take the very first newspaper. I mean, you know, here's a town of 10, 12,000 people, had two newspapers. He felt he wanted to start a third soon. It has many newspapers, would that we had many newspapers in our big cities today. But that he believed in that voice, the many voices, the competing voices, the diversity of voices that came from a robust press. So he takes over a newspaper. And in one of his first editorials, somebody had complained about not liking something that had been in the paper. And he writes Apology for Printers, a great editorial, in which he says, basically, you're not going to like everything that's printed in this paper. But by the way, if printers only printed things that everybody liked, there'd be very little printed in this world today. Because people's opinions are as varied and as diverse as their faces. And those of us people like himself creating a new nation based on the free flow of information and the free discussion of ideas. He said, you know, we believe that when all sides are heard and with truth and falsity all have fair play, that the people are going to be smart enough and truth will triumph over falsity. 
And once again, it was that underlying tolerance and pragmatism that leads him to the notion of a raucous free press and a press that tries to allow the people, that believes in the people, that if the people have many voices, the people are smart enough to decide instead of having censors or gatekeepers telling them what they have to think. An abiding respect for we the people is what was there. And while Franklin deeply believed in the need for a free press and free speech, he always made decisions based on strong personal principles. And he tells a wonderful tale about how somebody tried to get him to print something uh, that he found too scurrilous and not true, but was going to give him a lot of money to print it. And so he said, I went home and I bought a little loaf of bread and made myself a gruel of uh, bread and water and just ate that for a day and slept on my greatcoat instead of sleeping on a bed, just slept on the floor on a coat. And I realized I didn't need the money that badly. I was never going to compromise my principles or do things just for money. And that that responsibility comes with the press as well. And those of us who are journalists or recovering journalists, whatever I am, uh, you know, need to remember that both the uh, duties and the responsibilities and the joy and the exuberance that comes from an open press in a society that allows the clash and the free flow of ideas that is so fundamental to our democracy. Once again, it's something that on these streets of Philadelphia, Franklin understood intuitively and helped endow to this nation. Speaking of principles, Franklin had tremendous confidence in the American people, especially what we would now call the middle class. And he set out to strengthen the virtues of American citizens. He also uh, created for himself because he really believed that the uh, middling people, the middle class people, were going to be the backbone of a new nation. That if he could get the tradesmen and the shopkeepers and the artisans of Philadelphia to uh, engage in self-improvement, to be a little bit better and more diligent, it would help create a stronger society. So he comes up with all of his virtues, the virtues he's going to teach himself and then try to have the other people in his group learn. And he makes a wonderful list of 12 virtues of industry and frugality and all the things you need to be a successful uh, shopkeeper and citizen. And he's very proud of it, and he works on it every week, marking down how he had done on each one of these virtues. Eventually putting it on a piece of slate, he said, because in his wonderful self-deprecating style, he loves to poke fun at himself. He said, I had to put it on a piece of slate because I was uh, making so many marks, and it was, you know, working through the paper of the notebook that he needed a slate where he could erase some of the marks and start clean again. But he finally gets it right, and he gets these virtues, and he's showing it around to his friends. And one of his friends kindly informs him that he's left off a virtue that he might want to have. And Franklin says, what's that? And the friend says, um, humility. Um, <laughs> perhaps you should add that one to your list. And Franklin, of course, adds humility to the list and says, I was never able to conquer this virtue. I was never able to master humility. But I was very good at the appearance of it. <laughs> I, was, I could fake it. I could feign humility. And, but here's the key part, where the appearance and the underlying reality, as is at least in my mind the theme of Franklin's life, joined together. And he said the appearance of humility and caring about uh, humility and showing humility was in many ways as important as the real thing. It caused you to listen to other people, to care about what they thought, to realize you may be fallible, to realize you may have to make compromise. Franklin's commitment to virtue, his love of good jokes, led to one of his great strengths, 
the ability to make us think and laugh at the same time. He also had a wonderful, as you can tell, sense of humor. And I think that humor also, in a way, comes from the humility and the sense of tolerance and everything else, because it was a special type of humor that became the American style of humor. It was a new type of humor in many ways. It was that folksy, sort of naive character, like Silence Do Good or later Poor Richard or many of the other pseudonyms he invented, folksy and naive and feigning a little bit of innocence, but with a sharp and wicked pen that's poking fun at the powerful and the pretensions of the elite and at the arrogance and stuff with a little self-deprecation thrown in. The type of humor you've seen in everything from Mark Twain to Will Rogers to the present that is very American because it gives a sense of community and tolerance and uh, that sort of good-natured um, uh, poking at the powerful uh, that keeps American democracy so healthy. You see it in so many of his pieces, and he combines it with the notion of religious tolerance and everything else. Um, there's a witch trial at Mount Holly, which I love, a little tale he wrote. These are all kind of hoaxes that half the time people thought were real stories, and only a few years later or many years later realized they were hoaxes by Benjamin Franklin. But the witch trial at Mount Holly is poking fun at religious intolerance, where they decide to see if some people are witches, uh, they're accused, so they're going to dump them in the river. And uh, if they sink, it means they're actually innocent, but if they float... Uh, <laughs> It means they're witches, which seemed like a no-win proposition. <laughs> but those who are accused said, well, that's fine, but you have to throw the accusers in as well and see. So they throw them all into the river, and most of them uh, float. And um, Franklin, or his narrator says, with the wry wit of Franklin, some of the people kind of figured out that maybe it just meant that human beings naturally float. But others weren't so sure, and they decided they'd try it again in the summertime when they could do it without clothes to see who floated and who sang. And even poking fun at the double standards that happened at the time. Benjamin Franklin was the father of an illegitimate child, uh, William, a very interesting character, who, uh, as I said, was the... Uh, guy who became somewhat aristocratic, pretentious, loyalist to the crown, and Franklin was uh, sort of half-aiming the first part of his autobiography at him. But uh, he does a story called The Trial of Polly Baker, who also had had illegitimate children, five illegitimate children, but she's on trial and she's been put in jail for it. And she kind of mentions, well, you know, I believe the promises that were made to me, and uh, there are five men who... Um, uh, and they're not on trial, and somehow I am on trial. And she gives a stirring defense of what she has done to help the citizenry and how she was the one who was misled, and why is she the one on trial instead of the men. And at a certain point, one of the magistrates comes down from the bench with great emotion and proposes marriage to her, and they get married. <laughs> one suspects that he may have been one of the five. I'm not quite sure. But, uh, but it's just this wonderful way of poking fun at some of the pretensions of the elite while also establishing a new feel for what American democracy would be about. What great storytelling for the hour. Benjamin Franklin, born on this day in history in 1706. Walter Isaacson, the great biographer of so many great Americans. Steve Jobs, Einstein, and of course, Ben Franklin.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Walter Isaacson's talk at the Free Library of Philadelphia. The subject, Benjamin Franklin, his book that he was plugging at the time, a terrific one, Benjamin Franklin and American Life. Isaacs here continues telling us about the rise of Benjamin Franklin, the writer. And we can't discuss Franklin's writing without mentioning Poor Richard's Almanac. The best of all, of course, is the Poor Richard's Almanacs, uh, which he printed in his shop right here in Market Street. And Poor Richard's is one of his uh, pseudonyms and great cutouts. And the great thing about Poor Richard's is basically his philosophy was doing well by doing good, meaning he can make a buck by doing good for his fellow uh, citizens. He taught a whole lot of maxims, you know, the early to bed, early to rise, which I'm not sure Franklin fully obeyed most of his life, and a penny saved is a penny earned. It was partly there to help people, the shopkeepers and tradesmen, become better citizens. But as poor Richard says in the very first preface of the very first almanac in 1733, he wasn't just doing it to be helpful. He was doing it because his wife threatened to kick him out of the house and throw away all of his instruments and stuff if he didn't make some money at it eventually. And so he's doing it to make a buck as well. And uh, you see that uh, great style of Franklin uh, poking fun at himself, but also being an entrepreneur who believes you can be an entrepreneur, but also help your community and be a good civic citizen. With all of his wit, industry, and business sense, Franklin built what we would now call a media empire. Eventually he retires, or semi-retires, from the print trade. He's franchised his shops up and down the coast from Boston to Barbados. Uh, created a great media empire that would be the envy of the media empires I used to work for and others, in which he had both wonderful printing facilities and then franchises up and down the coast, and then the content, be it Paul Richard's Almanac or his own writings of the newspapers, and then the books that he imported to publish, and then eventually, being a great media tycoon, the distribution system, which he wanted to help control, so he helps create the U.S. Postal Service uh, for that. Uh, once again, a case of doing well by doing good, but he takes some time off after a while uh, from these partnerships because he wants to turn himself into a great citizen and civic leader and do well for his community. He writes his sister a wonderful letter describing his motivations. He say, and he ends by saying, uh, I'd rather it be said of me that I lived usefully than that he died rich. And uh, what he does is he forms many of the groups, including the library we're sitting here and the others I talked about, uh, that help Philadelphia and help America uh, become better communities, better towns, and uh, a greater country. And uh, among those was the Junto, a great little discussion club, which is supposed to help, you know, the tradesmen of Philadelphia discuss the important issues of the time, the timeless values, uh, and how they apply to the problems they were seeing at their time. The Junto, by the way, was a club for mutual improvement, established so that the members could debate questions of morals, politics, natural philosophy, and business. It was also a charitable organization and created a subscription public library. Among its original members were printers, surveyors, a cabinet maker, a clerk, and a bartender. For Franklin, this intense interest in learning and mutual improvement was part of his relationship with God. He connected that to his uh, rather amorphous but deep belief in God, 
I think when he founded the libraries here, he had a wonderful slogan, which was basically to pour forth benefits for the common good is divine. And that helped him figure out that uh, even though he didn't know which particular religion or which particular church here to join, there was one particular creed he felt all churches should have, which is the best way to serve God is to do well by your community and your fellow citizens. Now, that also came in the founding of the University of Pennsylvania. And I love the difference uh, of the way he founded the University of Pennsylvania and to compare it to his friend and protege, Thomas Jefferson, who later founded the University of Virginia. But Jefferson felt that the point of a university like that would be to skim a new aristocracy, to create, in his version of a meritocracy, to take the most talented people and remove them from the rest of society, elevate them, skim them off a bit, and make them into this new aristocracy. Not Franklin. He was the most democratic. He had the best fingertip feel for democracy of all the founders. And for the University of Pennsylvania, it was to help any aspiring person, any inspiring person who was going to be diligent and work hard, whatever their station in life, to help improve them to become better citizens. And he wasn't trying to create a new class society or a new elite, but just a better society all around in which people from all walks of life uh, got a very practical and solid a chance to be better citizens. As much as he'd accomplished in America, Benjamin Franklin had much more to do overseas. In the years leading up to the American Revolution, Franklin did what he could to prevent war, but without compromising principles. He finally goes over to England after that to uh, help. Uh, he was a man of great uh, hope for the British Empire, and he basically felt all problems could be solved by looking at the underlying values and saying, we can find common ground. And he mistakenly thought that he could find a common ground that would save the British Empire and keep what he called the fine, noble China vase from shattering apart, thus never being able to be put back together. He finally ended up using the humor again, those hoaxes, just like when he was silenced do good. One of my favorites is uh, a newspaper article he wrote. It was after England had imposed a lot of taxes and tariffs and they had justified the taxes and tariffs on the colonies for a variety of reasons, uh, including the fact that they had colonized you know, this part of the world and they had protected against wars and they had the right to impose the taxes. So he wrote the edict from the king of Prussia, which appeared in the papers. It was an edict from Prussia in which Prussia announced it was imposing a tax and tariffs on the English because they had colonized England and protected in certain wars. And he was at a country home at that point in England, and somebody comes running down with the paper and says, look at this, and they're reading this thing aloud with great outrage that the king of Prussia would have put out such an edict. And they look at Franklin in the corner smiling, and they realize that uh, once again, his pen, his sense of humor, his way of humor, using humor to make a point had been so successful. Uh, he, of course, uh, finally gets humiliated over and over again in his attempt, so he comes back to America in 1775 and casts his lot in favor of the revolution. Having chosen sides, Franklin channeled his many talents into supporting the American Revolution. For example, by helping to articulate our nation's principles. The three most important people on the committee were Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and of course Benjamin Franklin to write the Declaration. And on Market Street here, using a little lap desk that he invented, 
Jefferson writes the very first draft, the initial draft of what they're going to do, and he sends it to Franklin a few doors away. And in this beautiful flowery letter, says, well, the good Dr. Franklin and all of his infinite wisdom, please peruse this document and any improvements he could possibly make and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, boy, people are much nicer to editors back then. <laughs> and Franklin sees that famous second paragraph, and Jefferson has written, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And Franklin takes his printer's pen, that wonderful black printer's pen with the heavy backslashes that a printer uses, and crosses out the last few words, and changes it to, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And he wants to make the point that it's the consent of the governed from which these rights emerge, their natural rights, rights of reason and rationality, not just rights endowed by religion. Indeed, and when we come back, our last segment, The Life of Benjamin Franklin, as told by Walter Isaacson at the Free Library of Philadelphia. More after these messages. Our American Stories, our final segment in the hour, celebration of the life of Benjamin Franklin, born on this day in history in 1706. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to you by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. They've got a dozen plus courses ready for you to take on everything from the Constitution to free market economics and a a C.S. Lewis course it's just outstanding. But back to Walter Isaacson, author extraordinaire, particularly in biographies of great Americans. Steve Jobs' was terrific. And Ben Franklin and American Life was superb. And let's pick it off where we were. Let's pick it up where we last left off. Having helped to draft the Declaration of Independence, including one of its most memorable phrases, Franklin again went overseas in service of our young country. Later that year, he goes to France to get France in on our side in the revolution. Uh, I think he was the last diplomat who really knew how to handle the French. Um, And he did it masterfully. First of all, he played a wonderful balance of power. He's a realist. He played a balance of power game. A balance of power game that would have dazzled a Metternich or Kissinger, playing off the interests of Spain, the Netherlands, France, the Bourbon Pact countries, and England, making it clear to Verjean, who was then the foreign minister, and King Louis XVI, why it was in France's interest to be on the side. But more importantly, he realized, and this is a key to what America's all about in its role in the world, and the role we're going to have to play in this new century, that the strength of America has been, always will be, and even when it won the Cold War, its strength was the appeal of its ideals, not just the force of its interests and power. That people like the ideals of America, the ideals of liberty, aversion to tyranny, the things that Franklin stood for. And he, he promotes these throughout France. He prints the Declaration of Independence, all the state constitutions on this private press that he creates in, his, uh, in Paris. 
because he wants to inspire the French people with the ideals of equality and liberty that are bubbling up so famously in France at the time. And he becomes the most famous uh, American ever, in, well, with all due respect to Jerry Lewis, ever in <laughs> France. And um, people are paying to see him go through the streets. They're paying for good spots on the street when he's being brought to the academy to uh, hug Voltaire. And Franklin's no fool. He's always worrying about his image, whether it be about humility or industriousness, rolling the carts of paper through the streets of Philadelphia, or his um, generosity And uh, uh, when he first arrives here. Uh, he knows that the French sort of love Rousseau and the idea of the natural man. So here's a guy, Benjamin Franklin, who really has lived in Philadelphia and London his whole life, on Market Street and Craven Street, for that matter, two well-named streets. But he pretends to be the great backwoodsman as well, and he wears the fur cap and the frock coat from the backwoods. And, the sort of, and even when he goes into the salons or whatever, none of the wigs or fancy ceremonial swords, he's wearing his fur cap, and people are touching it and... Uh, thinking of him as a natural frontier philosopher. And they create all these medallions and portraits of Franklin, and it just became a thing in Paris, everybody wearing Franklin medallions. It so annoyed King Louis XVI and amused him that when one of the countesses who was part of the court of the king at the time kept on and on about Franklin and wearing the medallion, the king actually had a chamber pot made with an embossed Franklin medallion at the bottom for her. And that's the thing about Franklin. What a showman. A real showman. And, you know, he wasn't just having fun over there in France. He was getting the French to support us against the Brits. And that was a big deal. Something like 90% of our gunpowder came from the French. After fulfilling his diplomatic mission overseas, Franklin began another mission of sorts back here at home. And that had to do with the development of the U.S. Constitution. And if you get a chance, go to Philadelphia, bring the family. The tour there around the Liberty Bell and Assembly Hall and the Constitution Center, it's just remarkable. And it's well worth a day or two of your life and your family's life to go there. And you'll learn what a, what a remarkable part of the Constitutionist development and the role that Franklin and George Washington played in it. Both of them had such, such big roles. I wanted to give you a quick quote from Franklin. He said this uh, in a speech to the Constitutional Convention. I've lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house they labor in vain who build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests, our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to future ages. And what beautiful writing. By the way, Franklin saw to the core one morally troubling part of the Constitution. He saw it clearly more than almost any other person on the convention floor. There was, however, at that convention and in Franklin's lifetime, one issue that could not be solved by compromise. 
And it was the issue that they failed to solve. It was the issue of slavery. And uh, Franklin had fought tyranny his whole life. But he had made many errors in his life, which is why I like him. He was the flesh and blood founder, as I said, the one who made errors, admitted to those errors, and tried to rectify them, as he said. So in his 80s, after the convention, he decides to become president of the Society for the Abolition of Slavery, because he had owned two slaves once in his life, and he had allowed his newspaper to carry advertisements for slavery. And he realized that this was a blot in a lifetime spent fighting tyranny. So he becomes president of the Society for the Abolition of Slavery and does a remarkable, brilliant, wonderful petition and speech talking to Congress and everybody else about the ideals of America and how incompatible and uncompromisingly incompatible they were with slavery and how slavery had to be abolished and all slaves freed, etc. A congressman from Georgia got up right afterwards after this thing is published and gave this speech attacking Franklin, talking about uh, how the economy would be in trouble if he didn't have slavery and how slavery was needed and how the slaves who were here were better off and that sort of thing. So from his deathbed, last thing, great thing he writes, lying in the deathbed here on Market Street, he writes yet again another wonderful hoax that for a while fooled people. And in the paper he publishes, he says that he discovered, and this is just Echoes of silence do good at age 16. Here he is in his 80s. Discovered a speech given 100 years earlier in the Divan of Algiers by the, one of the great legislators of Algeria, defending the need to continue the practice of enslaving white European Christians to work in Algeria. And it goes step by step through the arguments that have been made defending slavery in America. And was quite a sensation. And to me, it was a fitting end to a life begun as silence, do good, fighting against tyranny and all forms of trampling of our rights, making our blood boil exceedingly, to do that parody and hoax, uh, the speech of the divine of Algiers, on his deathbed. Walter Isaacson ended his talk about the life of Benjamin Franklin by telling one great story that sums up the sort of man Franklin really was and how he shaped the culture of our still young but distinctive nation. In his lifetime here in Philadelphia, he had contributed, if you look at his ledgers, to the building fund of each and every church in Philadelphia. And even at one point, he raised money for what was then called the New Hall, right next to what is now Independence Hall. And it was for itinerant preachers, preachers who wanted to come in and didn't have a pulpit. And in the, brochure, in the pamphlet he writes, soliciting money for it, he says, even if the Muftai of Constantinople were to send somebody here to preach Mohammed to us, we should give that person a pulpit, and he should have a place to speak, and we should listen. And then right before he dies, he's one of the largest, he's the top three donors uh, to the Mikveh Israel Synagogue, the building fund of the first synagogue in Philadelphia. So on the day he died, when they bring his coffin to the grave, uh, usually your minister marches with the coffin, all the ministers and preachers of all of Philadelphia and the rabbi of the Jews all walked arm in arm holding his coffin to the grave. And what a testimony. And what a thing to do, by the way. That is true religious tolerance. And did it without much fanfare at all. It was just something he knew that needed to be done as a citizen. And so he did it. And by the way, one last quote 
from the speech to the Constitutional Convention. And what writing? The more the people are discontented with the oppression of taxes, the greater need the prince has of money to distribute among his partisans and pay the troops that are to suppress all resistance and enable him to plunder at pleasure, there is scarce a king in a hundred who would not, if he could, follow the example of Pharaoh. Get first all of the people's money, then all their lands, and then make them and their children servants forever. The life of Benjamin Franklin, told beautifully by Walter Isaacson, Walter's terrific book, Benjamin Franklin, still available at bookstores and Amazon. Pick it up, you won't put it down. And as always, our This Day in Histories, brought to us by Hillsdale College, and on this day in history, Benjamin Franklin was born in 1706 in Boston, Massachusetts.